as much as you could soak it up, he could give it. And so you needed to really be ready to grow when you, when you worked with him. So when I arrived, I was really gung-ho. I was just like, whatever he asks me to do, I'm going to do because I don't want to miss any of the growth that God could have for my life. And so I remember getting into my first sort of sit-down meeting with him in his office. And I'd already predetermined in my mind, if he because I thought, high-level mentors like this, they probably like have a test at the beginning, like some sort of thing to see if you're like difficult or stubborn or hard to work with. So I thought no matter what he asked me to do, I'm going to do. So I thought if he asked me to like clean the toilets of the church with my toothbrush, I'm going to do it just because I want to show him I'm willing and I'm eager to learn. And so we sat down and, and he, I was just all ready and eager. And I thought, what's he going to ask me? And the question he asked me sort of caught me off guard. He says, do you keep a journal? And I said, like, you mean like a, a guy diary? And he said, uh, well, yeah, do you keep a journal? No. And he said, Steve, the unexamined life is not worth living. We're done. So I went downtown and I bought a journal. And uh, I learned he was right. Examining your life actually produces unique fruit in your life. Unique good things come out of examining your life. We happen to be in a series called Holy and Whole, and we're using a little bookmark uh, question to examine our lives, to keep asking ourselves uh, about things that would be healthy and good for us. And now, by this point, we put them, at the beginning, we had them all through the benches. By now, if you have one in front of you, you're very fortunate because they've been taken home. People have them in their books and are, are checking these up. And I've had different people who've responded back, sent me emails. Thank you for the email saying, this is what I, as I asked this question, this is the decisions I came to and, and healthy decisions for my life. But if you, if you want one and you see one in the, in the bench, take it quick because it'll be your last. It's sort of like, getting clothes that you want. Uh, take it home today. It'll be your last chance. But let's, it might be your last chance. But we want to read the, the health check question together that's on the bookmark, and, uh, and then we'll jump off from there. So it says, now it's time for, let's read it with me, honest and heartfelt evaluation of what I need to add and what I need to lose, thoughts I need to take captive Truth, I need to meditate on. Help, I need to seek. And the healing, I need to receive. So the last number of weeks, we've been talking about all sorts of different parts of that. You might have noticed that. We've been slowly working our way through different parts. And today, I want to talk about that last line, the healing I need to receive. I'm going to lean into it a little bit this week here. And um, we have our theme verse, too. Let me just pull that up. If we can get that up on the screen, too. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 is our theme verse. And it, it says this. It says, may, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. So God's desire for you and for me is to make us holy and whole. Uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, well, maybe a different way to say holy would be uh, spiritually uh, clean or spiritually right with God or spiritually mature or maybe you might say um, spiritually healthy. 
all those things could, could probably fit. With it. I like spiritually mature because you see that language again and again in the Bible about growing up to be spiritually mature. So that's what I usually think of is when I see the word holy. So not being uh, living a selfish life, not living a life uh, that's about yourself, but a life that's about God and, uh, and responding to God, agreeing with God, with what he says about um, selfish actions. And uh, so that's the first word. But then what does it mean to be whole? So, um, whole, I think, is just really talking about emotional health. And now these things, we put a big and in front of them here on our sign here because we wanted to really be very clear that you can't just, you're really meant to have both of these. And that one without the other really makes you an incomplete person. Incomplete, especially in the design for what God has for your life. For example, if you, if you say, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be holy, I want to be like God in his righteousness and his purity and his sinlessness, but I'm not, I think that's sort of, you know, a waste of time, that emotional wholeness piece, I don't think that's of great value. Uh, you might find that, um, you might find that uh, you, you obey God, but you don't really love others well. Your, your, your kindergarten report card would say, does not play well with others. And we find that. We find that. Perplexingly, we find that in, in church with Christians who serve God for 40, 50 years, and yet somehow people experience them as harsh, uncaring, hateful even. How can that be? How can someone be holy and, and yet emotionally unhealthy? And I think it's that the full work of what God wanted to do has never been done. What if you just said, I, I just want to be whole? That sounds really good. Whole sounds wonderful. I don't know about that holy thing. That sort of sounds scary, but whole sounds really good. Uh, can you help me manage my life so that I can manage my relationships with others? And I don't know about that, that part. And so a lot of people go this direction too. They want the self-help that will help them manage their relationship with other people and their own inner turmoil and their woundedness and their hurts and getting healthy. But they, if they put this part besides, then they don't, uh, they don't love God well. Right? Do you remember what Jesus said was the, the two greatest commandments? He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds just like Jesus, always with, you know, <laughs> what's the one? He gives them two, right? What's the one greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. This is Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, he gives the bonus commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So someone who maybe is trying to be holy without being whole is attempting to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and, and maybe not really paying much attention to how they love others. Maybe someone who's trying to be whole without holy says, I really want to love others, but I, I, I'm not sure, and they, they neglect the part about loving God first. That's why it's really neat that, like this big and, which is also, of course, if you're, you probably clued in, it's also a symbol for the cross. We need both, but all, the, the cross has got a, a vertical component and it's got a horizontal component. Loving God and loving others. And so let's just, let's just stop for a moment here this morning as we begin. 
how are you doing with these two components? These two components of a, of a, of a healthy, mature life. Are you loving God well? Are you loving God well? You say, yeah, God and I are good. Well, that seems a little bit less than what is described in the commandment, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, are you loving God well? It seems like what Jesus is calling people to is very passionate, complete love for God. Not sort of a, oh yeah, that's, you know, I got that sort of ticked off. Yeah, oh yeah, I love God. I'm, I'm positive towards him. I have some mildly affectionate feelings towards him. It's one of the things in my life I enjoy. He says, no, this is, a, this is a thoroughly passionate love. All your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Are you loving God well? That's the first question to ask. Then the second question is the vertical question. I mean, that was the vertical question. Then the horizontal question. And that is, are you loving others well? How do other people experience you? How do they experience me? Those are good questions for us to ask. Am I loving them as I love myself? Now, there's a, there's a sneaky way to get out of this one people try. They say, well, you know what? I don't think that much of myself. And I don't think that much of other people either. So it's about even. I guess I am loving them like I love myself. And that's not the, the state of emotional health that God wants to bring you to. You don't get a pass if you say, I hate everybody, but I hate myself. So that's even. It's not good. No, you're called to uh, have a healthy relationship with other people. And that is tied in with having a healthy relationship with how you view yourself. Interestingly enough, how you view yourself is, again, tied back to how you view God. So am I loving others well? All right, two good questions to get us started, but we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll see it up there, or you can use the, the Bibles in the bench if you want to as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the job of any leader in the church, whether you're leading dozens or hundreds or thousands or one or two or three, and by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've crossed that line of faith, you are now um, recruited into influencing others for him, right? You're, which is basically leadership is influence. So whether you have leadership over hundreds or thousands or you're really just leading in your own family or maybe you help out with mega sports camp in the summer or whatever leadership capacity that you run in, you have been called to equip people for works of service. So the church is built up that it's united in faith and in the knowledge of Jesus and it becomes more mature like Jesus, right? So for me, I look at that and I, I, I understand some of my job description through this. One of my roles is to equip people for works of service like it is for every believer. God's given me a certain parameter of, of responsibility and so I need to take that seriously. So 
We teach on Sunday mornings with that hope in mind, that people will be built up to the point of maturity in their faith. Uh, we, do, we teach children and teens, and, uh, and um, we provide opportunities, like Daisy coming up here, providing opportunities for us to serve through these. God has in mind for us to do works of service, and through that, we are transformed. As you help somebody else, it's amazing what it'll do on the inside of you. So those are all parts of the things we do. We do the set-free retreat with the same thing in mind. God wants his people to come to this place where holiness is and on wholeness is their experience, where they're being transformed, where God is cleaning up their lives. He's changing them from the inside out. There's a transformation that's happening. Old patterns that are destructive are being undone. That's why we do these things. Because we're called to do these things. We want to be, we're called to be united around Jesus and growing in maturity and being like Jesus. Unity and maturity. maturity. It sounds good. Let's read a little further. It says, Then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Okay, so we have unity with people who are seeking to become like Jesus, and that becomes a protection against being deceived by people's lies. That also sounds good. Let's read the next part. It said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So every supporting ligament, that's us. Every follower of Jesus is a supporting ligament. Does its work, and then the group of people we call the church grows and builds itself up in love. That, it's all sounding good, isn't it? What an incredible plan. He's got this great plan for us. So now, here it gets down to the nitty-gritty. So far, it's been sort of like, oh, this is great. What a beautiful picture of where we're going. But here, here it gets down to some of the more practicalities of the thing. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So saying as the Gentiles do is basically like the culture around you predominantly acts in these ways. Okay? So this is, that was when at the time it was written this would have been true. It says, um, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So you've got the hardening of your heart, which leads to ignorance, which leads to darkness in our understanding and being separated from the life of God. It's not a pretty picture. There's a lack of sensitivity. It's less and less sensitivity, right? It's like your conscience is being dulled. So that things that you once said, I'd never do that, and then suddenly you're doing those things, and you say, oh, I don't see the problem with it anymore. No sense to be giving themselves to sensuality so they can indulge in every kind of impurity. And, as, and it says, just sort of taxing on at the end, like it's, but they're full of greed as well. Now this is one way to live, but it's definitely not a good way to live, and it's not God's way to live. And that's what comes next. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life 
to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this to me is the, sort of the key verses. I'm going to read a few more here, but this is the key verses in where what I think is important in here. There's this, this we were, it says you're taught to put something off, your old self, and then you're, you're also taught to put on something, the new self, okay? The old you and the new you. It's like a before and after picture. You know, you, those are always fun, eh? It's like before, after. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I found this guy online recently. He's like, I can't remember his title. He has some title for his thing, but he's a fitness instructor. And you know, fitness instructors are always trying to get an edge, you know, be, you know, more novel than the other fitness instructors so they can make money, right? So he's a fitness instructor and he was like in ridiculously good shape. And then to show how anyone can become fit, he stopped working out and intentionally gained 70 pounds. Crazy, just absolutely mind-boggling crazy. And so they they had him interviewing them, this guy, and he's like, so what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm not working out. What else are you doing? Oh, I'm eating all this bad food. And as he was describing it, I thought, you know what, he's just living like everyone, all the rest of us are living. (laughs) But anyhow, this was his goal. And so then he got to this point where he was, uh, he had gained 70 pounds, sort of lost all his muscle tone and all this stuff, and then he started the hard road back to get into shape. So I, I think, you know, it's sort of gimmicky, it's sort of something. But he wanted to show people um, that it was possible. So like most people have a before and after, he has a before and after and after. Hey, isn't that cool? Anyhow, so it's his gimmick, it's his stick, and I think it's making him some money. So it's, it's working fine. But um, this scripture tells us to say, put off those things that are part of the before. And put on these things that are part of you being brand new in the attitude of your mind. You are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You are created to to love like Jesus. You know, when Jesus says the greatest commands are to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself, then he went out and modeled it. And sometimes I read about Jesus like forgiving the people who are crucifying him. I read about uh, Jesus uh, finding people marginalized in society that everyone has rejected. And he's finding them at both ends of society. He's finding the absolutely, uh, the poor, the, the, lepr- the lepers of the day. He's finding them and reaching out to them. And then he's also finding some of the rich that have been marginalized. You don't often think that that happens. He finds like Zacchaeus, you know, the, the, the tax cheat, the guy who's been stealing money from all his neighbors and, and passing most of it off to the Romans but keeping hordes for himself. And he finds marginalized people in all these corners where most of us wouldn't find them. And he's loving them. And they're seeing their lives transformed. And I think, oh, I don't love as well as you do, Jesus. But you're calling me to put off the old Steve in his weak ability to love and to put on a new Steve who's like you with the power and the ability to love in the ways that I've struggled to do. To love God in ways I've struggled to do. To love others in ways I've struggled to do. You're calling me to put off the old and put on something new. 
to be like you. So it says, basically it's saying your old self was on a path to greater and greater corruption, greater and greater desensitization. But your new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holy. It's two totally different paths and two totally different destinations. Verse 25 says, therefore each of you must put off, now here's, this is sort of like where it gets down to specifics. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. So put off the old self, put on the new self, but specifically, what does that look like? Well, put off lying is one of the examples, falsehoods. Put off lying. Is it hard for you to tell the truth? Do you find yourself lying and you don't even know why you're lying? Put on speaking truthfully. Here's the next example. It says put off sinning in your anger. Put off sinning in your anger, which only makes things worse. It's not it's enough that you're angry, but then when you're angry, you're acting selfishly. Put that off and instead put on dealing with your anger and making things better. And then the third example was put off stealing. Put off taking what's not yours and put on working hard and sharing. Put off stealing, put on working hard and sharing. There's a few more here. Let me get the last few examples and then we'll, we'll uh, reckon with this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So again, put off unwholesome talk. Man, there's a whole bunch of things fit under that category. Gossip, slander, just crude and rude talk. (laughs) There's all sorts of things that really could fit. Put off unwholesome talk, but put on speech that benefits those who listen. Put off bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice, all that angry stuff. And instead, put on kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, just like Jesus was forgiving and is forgiving towards us. So, you get to that point and you say, wow, that sounds good, Steve. I have no idea how to do that. I have no idea how to do that. How do I put off these things? How do I put on these things? It sounds simple, but my experience has been that it hasn't been that simple. My personal experience hasn't been that way. So I want to change in this way, but, but how can I change? And the, the truth is that one of the encouraging things is you're not alone in this. If you look at this and you say, I'm going to make all these changes, I need to make all these changes on my own, with my, own, my willpower, I know how weak my willpower is, right? I know how it runs out at the end of the day. I know how I can grit my teeth for a long time and behave well, but then eventually it just all lets loose. So how am I going to change? How can I possibly change? You're not on your, you're not on your own in this. God will help you, and he'll, uh, he'll help you do what he instructs us to do. Let's go back to our theme verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Say, may God himself... 
Who's the main actor? God himself. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. So if God commands us to go in a direction of holiness and wholeness in our lives, he will empower us to do it. He, will, he is the one who will actually help us to do it. He'll make us holy and whole. He'll put you together. He's able to do it. Now, how does he do it? How does he put us together? Sometimes he begins with taking us apart. Often he begins with taking us apart. In fact, one of the truths about this part, about becoming whole, is often you have to go backwards to come forward again. Now, a lot of people don't like this. They just say, no, what's in the past is in the past. I don't want to have to face anything back there. I'm just going on. I'm just, that's under the blood of Jesus. That's them being holy and not whole. Just pointing that out, right? That's all dealt with. That's okay. I don't have to, I don't want to look into the rear view mirror. And you know what? God often will bring you back. He'll often bring you back. He'll often take you back and so, that, so that you can be healthy in the, in the, in the, in the present, so you, gotta, you can't be afraid of that. You know, one of the stories, I, I won't, it's too big of a, like it's like a whole bunch, it's about 16 chapters long, the story of Joseph. But it's one of the stories in the Bible that really, um, I think is a great sort of model or example, I think, for what God wants to do in a lot of our lives. A lot of us, the dysfunction that we have in our lives stems in, from the family of origin we grew up in. Now, I've got to be careful. My mom happens to be here this morning, so I've got to be really careful as I tiptoe forward, right? <laughs> My mom was a great mom. She did a perfect job. No, she'd be the first to say no, but she did a really good job. Yeah, yeah. So everybody gives feedback in this church. You think take your daughter to work day is hard? Take your mom to work. Okay. She was a good mom. She spanked me a lot, and I deserved half of them. <laughs> Anyhow, now we're getting on a rabbit trail. Your family of origin probably gave you a mixed bag of things to carry forward into your life. Some people don't want to look at that. Some people really want to paint the picture of their family of origin just with one color. If they're really mad, if they're really bitter, they want to paint it all black. If they're decided on the other side that they want to prop up an image for the family, that I came from a good family, from good stock, we're good people, then they paint it all white. And the reality is it's way more nuanced than that. In every family, every family has something that they gave to their kids. Let's admit that giving you life is at least something. If you struggle to honor your father or your mother, begin with that foundational reality. Someone spent nine months in gestation for you. Start there. You say, I, I struggle with gratitude because of the hardships in my life, because of the, 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 the deck of cards that, or the, the hand of cards I got dealt were very difficult. That, I don't doubt that. I don't dismiss that. Don't negate that, but... 
Start somewhere because gratitude is going to do a whole lot for your life. A lot more than bitterness will ever do. So if you, if you look back to your family of origin and you say, wow, it seems like it's all black, then you've got to start somewhere where you can say, well, okay, they gave me life. And then maybe you'll be able to add to that. Maybe you'll say, well, and they had some good intentions here, even if they went awry. Or they did teach me that one thing. And then go to God and say, okay, even though I don't feel like it, even though still bitterness is the, is the bigger motif in my life, in when I look back to my family of origin, I am going to thank you for these few things that I received from my upbringing. I'm going to thank you for those few things. Because I don't want to live a life as a victim. I don't want to live a life in bitterness. I don't want to live a life emotionally disabled. I think you've called me to something much better. On the flip side, if, you are, if your thing about your family of origin is that it's pristine and unimpeachable and there really was no dysfunction at all, I think maybe you need to be more honest. Every family of origin has some level of dysfunction and probably some of the baggage, the emotional baggage you carry today is due to that. Now, I'm not saying that to say man, you should be really dissatisfied and you go back to your mom and dad and just let them have it and tell them how they failed because that probably comes for all of us parents at one point. <laughs> I'm ready for that conversation. Neither of my boys are here this, or neither of my three boys are in the service this morning, but yeah, come on. That's coming for me someday, right? It's like, well, my therapist said, yes, I hear you. I know, you're right. So it's more nuanced than that. But here, what does God want you to do with your family of origin? I think, this is what he, I think this is what he has in mind. The story of Joseph is an interesting one. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the, the patriarchs, back when patriarch was a good word. Now it's sort of in our society, been painted with a different brush as a bad word, right? I'm being careful. Thanks for the warning. I know it's out of love. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... They all struggled with very similar sin problems. They all had a tendency to lie and deceive. Abraham did it. Oh, that's not my wife, he said to very powerful men who took a, you know, a lustful eye towards his wife. Well, that's not my wife. He'd step back in cowardice. It's just my sister. Isaac would go on to do the same. In fact, Isaac was excellent at deceiving. In fact, that's basically what he was. He was known as, as a deceiver. God had to intervene in his life and change his name to Israel to give him a brand new start. Oh, another thing they had problems with? Favoritism. Favoritism was a big deal. Abraham, at a certain point, he had, uh, he had Ishmael and he has Isaac and he spent more time with Ishmael. It became a problem. His wife really noticed and she got angry about it and that was an issue. And then his son Isaac, he had Jacob and Esau and he liked Esau, the big one, with the big hairy one, not the, not the small, skinny, wimpy one. But mom, she liked Jacob. And then Jacob, 
When he had 12 kids, he had favorites too. Favorite wife, that's cringeworthy. Favorite kids, Joseph had the coat of many colors, nobody else did. So you come through generations, even though God had chosen this family tree to bring his, the Savior into the world, to eventually, through generations, bring Jesus, who, who, who through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Even though that promise was made to this family, they were a train wreck in certain areas. And so when Joseph came along and experienced probably one of the worst hands you could be dealt in life, his family, his brothers rejected him, They took him and they sold him into slavery. And then, as they always did in that family, they lied to dad. Joseph had some choices to make. He could become bitter. He could say, God, you've forgotten me. As I'm a slave in Egypt, you've forgotten me. Or he could trust God trust God. He, he trusted God. And the interesting thing about Joseph, and I'll make the long story short, is when it all comes around, when his brothers, when the famine breaks out all over that known land, when his brothers come to Egypt to get food, by then Joseph's gone through all the testing. He's been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's gone to prison because of it. He's been forgotten in prison, even when other people said, I'll remember you when I get out. He's been forgotten, forgotten, and then finally, God, through miraculous moment elevates him to the second in command in all of Egypt. When he gets to that moment, everything that's been happening in him in the area of emotional health has an opportunity to come out. It's like the tail of the tape suddenly emerges. Have you ever noticed that in your life? You're just like, why am I so angry? Why do I have these feelings? It's like, well, I, or what I often say is, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's just a really great way of denying the fact that it came from within me. It came from within my heart. Somehow, I let something get planted there that wasn't loving, wasn't godly. And I got squeezed and it came out. And now I have to not disown it, like it's some foreign object, but own it because it came from me. When Joseph gets to that moment where he has the power over his brothers, he has the power to have them executed and killed, he weeps and he shows mercy and he says this, God, or the enemy, or this was meant for evil, sorry, you meant this for evil. This is what he says to his brothers because that's true. They did mean to, they wanted to hurt Joseph. So you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And what he doesn't say is, I've been trusting God all of these years, and now it's the moment of good. So your family of origin hurt you. Or you carry some emotional baggage because of how you grew up. I believe that God wants to bring that full circle so that you can come back and bring good to your family. I think that's his design. That's his plan. See, my hope for my sons, and if I ever get daughters, I'll hope for that too, but I got sons. My hope for my sons is they grow up 
and that hopefully there's good things out of being a part of our household. That they'll, they'll say, that's a blessing, that's a strength in my life, that's something that I'm, I'm happy for, and, and it was, you know, I'm better because I had this and I grew up in this home. But for every area where they go, I've got emotional baggage, that they will actually meet, know, interact with their heavenly father. There'd be a whole new family dynamic, not the Atkins family, but the family of God dynamic, where they say, I am a child of God. And what does that mean to be fathered by this loving, perfect, holy God? And then when they interact with him, that they actually come back. They'll come back someday and I'll go, wow. You're walking in greater functionality than your dad did. And that's not because the Atkins blessing, that's because of the, the blessing of God. So how do we go there? How do we get there? How does it work? If God says he'll do this, what does it look like when he does it? Often it looks like if God takes you back, if God takes you back, you say, well, I'm, I'm mad. I'm 20s, 30s, 40s. I don't know why I'm mad. I'm always I'm angry. I don't know why this matters so much to me. I don't know why I'm caught up in this. And you're trying to dissect it, sort it out, whether that's on your own with someone else. Usually better with someone else to have a sounding board because that's healthier. But anyhow, as you're doing this, as you're trying to figure this out, you'll often come back to a lie that came into your thinking when you were young. They say that children are the best recorders of history and the worst interpreters of history. Because when you're a kid, how, what do you, the questions you ask are not the kind of questions you ask when you're an adult. So let's say you're you know, 35, you get a job at a certain place, and you just realize the whole culture of the whole workplace is toxic. You're like, nobody is nice to everybody or anybody. Everybody is, you know, just looking out for themselves. Nobody works as a team. And, but as an adult, here's the question you ask. What is wrong with this place? A child, when they're in a tougher environment, you know the question they ask? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And so often when you're a child and something happens, some negative events, or, you grow, or you're from your family of origin, and it can be innocent. Oh, it could be innocent, so innocent. I heard this story of two, two sons, and um, the, the parents affectionately called them. One was skinny, and the other one was like broad-shouldered and muscular. Both great, good-looking boys. And they used to call the one the worm, and the other one the tank. The worm grew up very happy and well-adjusted, and the tank ended up being really insecure. You think, what? How did that happen? Somehow, he got into his mind that they're calling me a tank because I'm fat or something like that, and, he, and that messed them up for years. And they'd meant it affectionately, but it just never came across that way. So what happens is a lie gets into the mix of that. You have an experience or you have a culture or an environment and something is about your identity gets firmly implanted. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You carry that for years. 
And suddenly, someday, you're, you're sorting through your anger, you're sorting through your issues, and then suddenly, uh, the lie gets revealed. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen. The lie gets revealed, and when it gets revealed, the truth has an opportunity to come with it. Let me tell you two stories. 25, no, it was 24, actually. 24 years ago, I went to England, and when I was in England, uh, with a whole bunch of students there, I was staying at um, the uh, this one house with this one family and they had a little daughter named Lydia and Lydia was about nine and um, the parents who were followers of Jesus they told me this story they said um, if you'd met Lydia like a year ago um, well a while ago she was going through this sort of spell this difficult time and they said one day she came home from school and she said I'm ugly told her parents that and her parents jumped on that right away. Good parents, wonderful parents jumped. No, you're not ugly. You're beautiful. We love you. You're amazing. We're so happy. The day you were born, we rejoiced. They just did everything a parent could possibly do in that moment. But it persisted day after day. I'm ugly. No, Lydia, you're not ugly. I'm ugly. So this continued. And it was a while later... Again, they were speaking to her, praying for her, uh, trying to encourage her. And it was a lot while later, and I'm going to say six weeks because I don't know the exact time frame, but it was a while later where she came in one day bounding and full of joy, and they just said, Lydia, how come you're so happy today? And she said, oh, Jesus told me I'm pretty. Hmm. Jesus told me I'm pretty. And then that problem went away. Now let me tell you a second story. This story I heard on Thursday. I heard it third hand before, but I actually met the person who the story was about Thursday and had breakfast with them with a few other people. But at the end of the breakfast, I pulled Lorraine aside. Lorraine is, uh, she's in her 70s. She's a very strong leader in sort of a church network that we, can, we participate in. And, he and her and her husband, John, have been uh, leading at a very high level for many years. But I had heard her story third hand, and I said, I want to hear it firsthand. So I pulled her inside and I said, will you tell me the story that, you know, and I sort of gave her a bit. And she said, okay, I'll tell you the story. So she said, when I was in grade six, she said, I was in, the class, in a classroom, and we were preparing for a track meet. And um, so the teacher had, in order to uh, figure out groupings for the track meet, the teacher had us come to the chalkboard, and in front of the chalkboard, there was a scale, and we would stand on the scale and then take chalk and write our weight on the board with our name. And she said, uh, I did that, and I went back and sat at my seat. She said, I was one of the bigger girls in the class, and so after I sat down in the seat, the teacher, a male teacher, he looked at the number and then sort of looked at Lorraine and said, is that all? Now, Lorraine went on to live her life. She lived the majority of the next 60 years with a deep-seated insecurity. This is another thing I'll tell you. She also had lots of migraine headaches, but we'll come to that back in, in a bit. She had a deep insecurity. She married a great guy, John, and together they were leading at a very high level. 
She managed to, she managed to manage. She managed to cope with her insecurity, but it kept sort of leaking out in all sorts of different ways. At one point, they were leading, um, some of you might not know what this is, but it's Willow Creek Canada, which is a big networking organization in Canada for churches. They were leading it. They were the, in charge of the whole thing. And they would, have, they would meet some of the biggest leaders in the world, and sometimes when they were doing things in, in leadership settings, Lorraine would be asked to lead a small group and, uh, of leaders. And, and she would be so, she would struggle so hard to do that. It was really, really hard for her. And Bill Hybels, who was one of the leaders in their network, would take her aside and give her some coaching tips and say, you know, just do it like this, just do it like, you'll be fine, Lorraine, had a girl, go for it. She'd go back into these scenarios, but she just struggled and struggled and struggled. So in her 60s, in her 60s, she goes to this um, set free retreat like we're going to host in a week here friday this friday saturday she goes to a set free retreat and in the set free retreat this question is asked you know it's examining themselves has anyone ever hurt you or offended you and she's sitting there and thinking no i can't think of anyone and they said pray about it pray about it take some time close your eyes and just pray about it so she just asked that question of of god jesus jesus is there anything is there anyone who's really hurt me or offended me just if there is that i'm not aware of just show me and in that moment, she went right back to that classroom. Now, she hadn't been thinking about that story all those years. But God took her right back. She said it was like the movie of that scene was, was playing on the back of her eyelids. And she saw it all walked out. She heard what that teacher said. And the leader who was leading this session said, if, if you've already got to the point where you've pictured in your mind some place where you've been hurt or offended, said, I want you, to, I want you to ask a question that you might have never asked before in your life. I want you to ask Jesus where he was in that scene. So Lorraine, who had never done anything like this before in her life, this was new to her, she said, okay. Jesus, would you show me where you are in that scene? When she did that, she said, again, she's telling me this on Thursday at Humpty's. She said, it was like, again, the movie playing on the back of my eyelids. There I saw Jesus in the aisle between the desks, and he just walked. He walked down the aisle between the desks, and he got down on one knee, and he put his hands around my face, and he said, I think you're lovely. Lorraine told me, she has changed. She has changed in a deep and profound way. Now, I never knew the Lorraine of insecure years. I, every time I've met her, I think, this woman has it together. She actually sort of intimidates me. She is a, like a top-level leader, but she walks in confidence. It's not just that she's been given great responsibility. She suits it in every way. She says, every time I tell that story to people, she says, I turn to my husband, John, and I say, have I changed? And John says, oh, yeah, you've changed. 
I think Jesus wants to do a lot of work in a lot of people. I think he wants to do a lot of work in a lot of people, in you and in me and in lots of other people. I think he wants to do a lot of work in a lot of people. But you know what? He often gets stopped. He said this about when he was finishing his ministry here on earth. He, he's, he's, it's at the end that he's sort of looking at Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. How I long to be like a hen gathering little chicks around under its wings. How I long to be like that. The same Jerusalem that has been so caught up in turmoil. Jesus said, you always stone the prophets. The people who come to help you, you resist them. He says, I long to gather you. I long to bring healing to you. I long to bring wholeness to you but you were not willing. I believe that God wants to do more healing in our lives than we can possibly imagine. I believe there's areas in our lives that we we haven't thought about for years. We don't think about it. Yet they affect us today because a lie got in in a painful wound and it's continued to dominate our thinking and our acting ever since. And I believe for many of us, God wants to take us back. He wants to show us where that began. He wants to show us the lie that we came to believe. He wants to show us the truth that counteracts that lie. He wants us to understand his love in a deeper way. He wants to understand who he is and how we can relate to him as a loving heavenly father. He wants to do all those things so that our our days going forward are, are holy and whole and healthy and clean and empowered to love like he's called us to love. But willingness is key. Willingness is key. I wonder, when I hear about Jesus saying, I wanted to do something in here in Jerusalem, but you weren't willing, what would he have done? What would he have done We read about all that he did. What more would he have done if they were willing? What more will he do in my life if I'm willing? If I don't dig my heels in, if I don't clutch on to worthless things that I think are going to give me life, but they really end up just spiraling darker and darker in my life. If I only would let go of those things, if I only would stop and follow, what would he do? I think he would do amazing things. I think he'd bring health and wholeness and he would enable me to be all that he's called me to be. I want to end our time together with a little bit of reflection. A little bit of reflection. Okay? So we're going to, we're just, I'm going to sit down and we'll just, we can close our eyes. That's probably an easier way to reflect than you're not looking around. I'm going to just come back to those first two questions we asked, the vertical and horizontal question. Are you loving God well?
Do you notice a growing responsiveness in your heart towards him? Even if it's small, maybe you're just starting this journey. Is your affection for him growing? Is it becoming more noticeable? Is your desire for to know him and and to be in relationship with him, is that something that's is showing up more and more on your radar? Or has your love grown cold? I'm not talking about being perfect in this area. I'm asking about the direction we're going in. Are you going towards him more or away from him more? Maybe you made decisions recently and they were directions, they were decisions that are leading you in the right direction. They're towards Jesus. See, I'm exploring relationship with him for the first time. Or I'm I'm curious about that. Or I'm desiring that. Or or I just, you know, I'm signed up for things that I think are going to lead me in the right direction towards more interaction and more encounter with him. Or are you on the other end where you say, well, it seems like that was stronger at one point and now it's something that's diminishing. It seems like that's less a factor in my life. It seems like other things have captured my affections and my attention and my imagination. Jesus wrote a letter to a church in Revelation and he said, if you find yourself in that condition, then turn around, repent is the word he used, turn around and return to your first love. Do the things you did at first. Do those basic things that you did at first. When God's word was precious, when prayer was meaningful, when worship was uh, something powerful in your life. If you're there, you just I would encourage you to just say, God, I'm, Jesus, I'm coming. I'm coming for you. I'm drawing close to you. I need you. I want you. Even if you say, man, boy, my heart is so cold at this moment, then tell God that. Say, God, my heart is cold. Would you make it flesh-like? Would you make it soft? Would you make it responsive? God, I don't desire you, but I know that that's where I need to be. I know I'm not in the right place. God, would you rekindle in my heart a desire for you? Just tell him that now. Put it in your own words. Silently, he can hear what you're thinking, so just tell him that. Now the second question. Are you loving others well? Are you loving others well? You might be in the very same situation here as you are with God. You say, but I want to, but I struggle so hard. I want to, but I'm sure that people experience me very poorly. I want to be one who brings love to the table, but it seems like all I can muster up is anger and hostility and harshness, and I don't want to be there. Tell God that. Tell God that. Say, God, I'm, I want to be one who loves as you commanded us to love and one who loves as you, like your example of love. I want to be able to forgive. I want to live a life of gratitude and praise and worship and, 
and uh, I don't want to live a life of bitterness. I want to be free of that. Help me, Jesus, do that. Could you put a spark of love in my heart for the people around me, those ones that I haven't been able to do that for a long time? Could you help me to grow in love? Could you help me love more than my family of origin was able to love? Lord, I don't want to be crippled in this area of love for other people. I want to be whole. I want to be able to help me take those first few halting steps in being lovingly affectionate with other people. And then help me grow. You're the master of loving. So teach me. Let me be your student. Let me walk in your ways. Let me follow you in this area. And Lord, that er- those areas where things got off track, where my view of you or my view of myself got so skewed, I'm willing for you to take me back. I'm willing for you to show me that area. Lord, show me the lie I believed about myself. Show me the truth about who I am. Show me the lie I believed about you. Show me the truth of who you are. Take me back so I can go forward.